This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Ursula Burns grew up in New York, and after an internship with Xerox, she took a permanent position with the company and worked her way up the corporate ladder. She is the first Black woman to become the CEO of a Fortune 500 company when she assumed the role at Xerox. She continues to play a critical role as a board member for companies like Uber, American Express, ExxonMobil, and Nestle. On this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, Ursula Burns reflects on how she became successful in her career and the social injustices in the United States. Ursula? Hey, uh, Carlos, how are you doing? Good, how are you? You look beautiful, my goodness, wonderful. Oh, thank you. I'm here in California. Uh, I heard it was hot as hell all over California. Oh, you know what? Um, It is, it's getting hot. We're, get, we're about to go 100 degrees plus. What's it like in New York? It's uh, one of the, you know, it's one of these picturesque 70-something bright sunshine Manhattan days. So it's, you know, we have had our share of good and bad. This is one of the good. I'm, I'm, you know, I live on a, in an apartment where I can see far, right? I'm up high and can see far. It's just a, such a beautiful, beautiful view. So I, I having a great day because of that, because I'm doing all of these interviews and looking out at the skyline. So that's pretty good. Now, do you have a favorite place to go walk in New York? Do you have a place you love? I have a path that I do um, all the time. I live right on 85th Street and 3rd Avenue. Uh, so I walk three blocks over for actually four blocks over to the FDR Drive and walk uh, from Charles Schutz's Park either direction. I go up or down. And uh, if I go up, I go all the way to 125th. You have to get off a little bit and then keep going. And if I go down, um, I go all the way, you know, as far, you, you have to get off around the, the um, UN, but then you can just walk all the way down. So I walk the FDR Drive. I love the, the I'm also three blocks from Central Park. And, uh, and I walk the, um, the reservoir in Central Park. I, so it's, New York is a perfect city. So during the pandemic, I spent my time in New York and London, mostly London, but then back here again. And both of these cities are great walking cities. So, I mean, literally they have sidewalks, they have things to look at even if they're closed. You can get into a park if you need to. So it was good in my first half of my pandemic, I lost almost 25 pounds. Of course I gained it all back in the second half of the pandemic. (laughs) But it was a good journey, it was a good journey. All right, now, now you made me hungry. Where do you eat when you go up to 125th Street? Where do you eat? And when you go down to the UN, where, where are you stopping to eat? I generally don't stop to eat when I'm walking, um, but I love um, a lot of the restaurants uh, in the lower part of Manhattan now. It's not necessarily, I go into phases and I'm, I'm into like Israeli street food. I don't know if you've ever. Oh, I have not gone there. Oh my. Falafels. Okay. Uh, there's a great falafel place. Um, and lamb place and just kind of like pocket things with all the, oh my goodness. In, um, in Hudson Yards, I think it's called Mizo. And then there was a whole bunch of them down the street. So I do that. Um, I love formal restaurants as well. You know, I, I 
you know, quote unquote, big name restaurants, but they have been closed. Most of them have been closed. Uh, so you, you know, you get a pickup here and a pickup there. So I haven't eaten out in, out in for a while, but there's little pockets of quote unquote street food that you can get all over the place. So it's good. I'm a big eater. <laughs> I'm a big eater, but I love, I'm a big cooker as well. I love to cook myself. So and I really got to do that a lot in uh, in the pandemic. So wait, wait, now what's your specialty? Because I've been known to crash people's homes uninvited right at about dinner time. Yeah, I did three things that I make uh, perfected. One is spinach lasagna. And I'm I have become unbelievably good at this spinach lasagna. It sounds boring, but I make this thing spicy and really cool. That's one. I love uh, vegetable stir fry, but it's not traditional. Vegetable, uh, not traditional vegetables. I put all the traditional pork and whatever you want, shrimp or meat in it. I I absolutely love that. And I really, really, really love making soups of all different sizes, all different types. I'm relatively new at soups. And I did soups because, first of all, you're in. What the hell do you, you know, something take your time. Uh, And I just pick whatever I have. The the fourth thing is I am almost perfect at chicken wings that are not fried, but done in the oven. Ooh, all right. Now, 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 now what is on my chicken wings? Because I, I can show up for chicken wings wherever they're making them. India, Italy, I'm showing up. <laughs> I have this great um, uh, rub or dip that's a, a ginger Thai dressing. It's from an Indian place on 34th Street. It's just a, you know, a powder of all of the stuff and it's spicy. The thing about wings that you have to be careful of, I haven't, I just got an air fryer and I'm going to try them in the air fryer, but I haven't done it yet. But if you're going to do them in the oven, there's a secret to making sure that they don't turn out to be like steamed chicken wings because you want them to be as crispy as possible, but not dried out. And that's you have to literally get all of the water off of them that you can. So people pat them dry. I literally get a dish towel and I just basically wipe them dry, put a little bit of oil on them, Pam, maybe salt and pepper and your thing, make sure that they are as dry as they can be and then put them in the oven and start slow at 350 degrees and then turn it up at the end. Really, really, really amazing. And if you do that with egg sliced eggplant with salt and pepper, a little bit of spray and the same dressing, you know, the same rub, unbelievable. All right, what are we drinking with this? So I am a... Um, Unfortunately, big red wine drinker and white wine drinker. I love wines. I love uh, very good wines. Uh, not always expensive, but definitely very good. So I drink wine. And during the pandemic, I, I had to take a while when I've lost the first amount of weight because I literally stopped drinking for six, eight weeks. Because what happens, you're, you're home, you're doing work, and you, it's like four o'clock in the afternoon. And you're like... <laughs> Why, you know, why not? There's never a day when I'm leaving the house and then coming home where I'm saying it's four o'clock. Why don't I get a shot, right? A drink of wine. But you can easily do it in your house. So I did this whole thing where, you know, for six weeks, no drinking. I tell you what, if you want to lose weight, stop drinking. Wow. It's a big deal. Because drinking does two things. A lot of calories, but also loosens your inhibition and you just kind of keep eating. So I drink wines, a lot of wines, red wines, uh, white wines. Love that. Love that. So it's now you're talking to another person who loves food. I grew up in Miami, so my taste buds, like a New Yorker, are very global, so lots of kind of things. They skew towards Caribbean and Cuban and Nicaraguan. I got it. I got it. Oh. My mother, is, my mother and father were from Panama. And my, uh, so my mother did all of the basic uh, rice and beans, um, coconut rice, uh, oxtail stew. Oh, my God, she did a great oxtail. The funny thing about it is I never learned how to do oxtail stew is one of these things I just absolutely love. Can't make it, haven't even tried for the life of me. So there's a whole bunch of uh, things I wish I learned from my mom before she died, but I didn't. I learned, I think, some of the important things. Now, curry goat or no? Do you know anything about curry goat or no? I I love curry goat. I just don't know how to make it. Okay. Okay. Now, um, my name, Carlos, is as a result of Panama. Ah. My grandfather was from uh, Jamaica, and you know that many people from around the world, but particularly around the Caribbean, went to Panama to help build the canal. This His is my, best part of my story. It's amazing. It's part of my story. Yours too, huh? Similar story? Absolutely. My, mother, my mother's parents and my father's parents were, one was from Nicaragua, and the other one was from, should I always get it mixed up, uh, from another 
Central American country, Nicaragua and whatever. I'll remember before the show's over. And they came to Panama to work on the canal, right? And then at the very beginning of the canal, they went back to their countries, but they met in, in, in Panama, came back and uh, continued working on the canal. And then my, my father, um, my, my mother was born in, in, in a place called Gamboa and they went to a place called La Boca, the mouth, and that's where the Panama Canal was being built. And as you know, the, the struggle with the, with the canal is that it was not a very um, safe or equally destructive on people's lives endeavor. And lots of black, uh, mostly black and brown people died building this thing. And a lot of them um, were displaced from country homes, not in other countries, but also around where the canal, where the canal was built. And after that, my father and my mother, but my father stayed in that area. His parents were built there. A lot of the time they had gone home, but stayed in that area. And what happened around that time as well is that they offered to Panamanians, but also to other Central Americans, uh, uh, Managua and uh, Managua, Nicaragua. So I have people from, the, I guess, one country, but two different areas, but that's the, the other place. They offered um, to these people who had very little an opportunity that was amazing, which is you can go serve in the army or the air force in the, in the military, in the armed forces, fight in the war, which was the Korean war. And if you live, you can get access to a green card in the United States. So every black person that looked like it was any black person, my aunt who went in there to be a nurse, my father who went there to do whatever he did in the army, um, um, went. Lots of people, lots of us died. We were not offered citizenship, obviously. We were offered a green card in this country because the United States needed fighters, right? And so that's part of the, you know, part of the abuse, but also abuse, an opportunity mixed in, in this abusive environment where, you know, you basically bribe someone and risk their life so that they can get a better life, right? This is what, what happens a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting that you talk about that because uh, that's how my dad's brothers, uh, my uncle Dunbar, may he rest in peace, and my uncle Lloyd uh, and my dad all ended up serving in the army. Same kind of story there, coming from Jamaica, coming from a small town and similar sort of opportunity in and around green card and the rest. And uh, um, yeah, there's just so many layers to these stories always. Right, exactly. At the end, they they are obvious. At the end, they are viewed historically back as good options, right? Good, good choices. They would have never come to America. You know, you look at it from that perspective, but you also look at it from how other people came here and what they had to do. Particularly white people, not Jewish people who had their own struggles, or Chinese, or but traditional white Anglo-Saxon Protestant people. They got here on this kind of the Mayflower or the friggin' Queen Elizabeth, Queen Mary, or whatever the boats were, with not a lot of conditions. Let's come and we'll, we'll, more than this, we'll even give you land if you're willing to go. We'll give you the land that we stole from the people who were living there so that you can act, that kind of thing. So I think that it's good, but this is what history, this is what we're the peeling back of the many layers of, of history, right? What we knew. We knew this unbelievable. Um, we knew this unbelievable opportunity, but and that's what's taught in school, right? You don't, you don't hear anything about this stuff. You don't hear about Joe Kennedy and the building of the canal and the just the number of people who of color who died in doing this with very little regard for for their lives, absolutely no enumeration or protection for their families. And, but you do hear about the building of the, you know, this great engineering feat by these white guys who did this. The reason why they could do this engineering feat is because they had experimental people. They had experimental experiments, us, but, you know, who people look like us who went down deep and, you know, died from the bends coming up. And so they perfected that. The science behind it was amazing, but it wasn't science done in the, in the light of the, you know, the value of a life, right? So much that you learn later um, that kind of taints the story from a admiration perspective, but also makes people like me and you and proud that this wasn't all these, these white guys going off and doing, you know, no, we were actually core, essential and fundamentally required um, to the success 
but it's, we, we never hear it, ever. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. happens, Ursula, when you do have that conversation with someone who is white and powerful? Do you find that they um, know that history? They generally do not know the history. Nowadays, it's more likely that they're starting to realize the history. But let's, you know, before we just, before this last two years of just everybody stop, you know, stop the four years with, with, with uh, Trump, where it started even, you know, four, four or five years ago, and then it got louder and louder and louder with um George Floyd with Me Too, George Floyd pandemic, it got louder. So people are starting to understand that, you know, we have start statues for this guy, Stonewall Jackson. And you look at what he did and you go, oh, my God, we're actually admiring a guy who massacred people. I mean, but blatantly did it. Not even a problem. Not, not a problem. And maybe you need to have a statue for him, but maybe it's important that you explain the context for the statue of, of him. Nowadays, more than ever, but if you were to go back um, let's say even 10 years ago, not even that long ago, seven years ago. Literally, I would tell people about the building of the canal. Black people didn't understand it. White people didn't get it at all. The records are, but you then think about the context under which it was built, where it was built. It shouldn't be that surprising. I mean, it's like, yeah, you say, okay, they, of course, didn't have worker rights things. They didn't have a minimum way. I mean, this wasn't like, so it's not, it's, it's, um, not surprising people don't get it. It is not surprising that they're starting to get it more and more. Um, it's, it is also not surprising that we have a little bit of momentum behind this retelling, a correct telling of history. You know, uh, well, you know, it's like the Tulsa story. I knew about the Tulsa story. My kids knew about the Tulsa story. Most black people had no idea about the Tulsa story. None. And, and 
Well, I get that. White people actually didn't have any idea at all if you live in Tulsa. And would prefer to believe, and even when you retell the story now, right? if we, the story is told now, it, because we're in where we are today, the context is kind of missed a little bit. You have to understand what we're talking about. We're talking about Madison Avenue, Madison Avenue. Um, and the neighborhoods around Upper East Side and Madison Avenue existing in Tulsa. And the people who lived in those neighborhoods, and I mean to that level, that level of achievement, not only economically, but just in the position of their life, that level of equality that they had gotten to, be literally having that happen. And just about everybody was black. The customers were black, the business owners were black, the banks were black or the bank was, so that's what exists. And for only, only, there's not another reason, there was all this reasons, but facts showed it, there was not another reason, only reason why this thing was destroyed and what 300 and something people killed was that there were some white people who didn't think they were worthy of that. So they basically went to this, this town and they killed 300, 200 and something people and burned the buildings and, and they left. <laughs> okay, thank you. And the and response was, okay. Yeah, it, it's just such an odd thing that we, we think about it now. We go, oh, come on, that didn't happen. The answer is not only did it happen, but the response from the black community and the response from the white community, black community appalled, but didn't expect a lot different, right? Where, where do they go? The white community is, oh, something must have happened. These guys don't deserve it. You know, these, some of them didn't even think, why the hell did they have this stuff? Don't you know that when the cops came in that they didn't respect them? Totally? You know, there's all this kind of logic you do around absolute bad behavior. It's, it's the George Floyd thing. You say, okay, I do understand. He may have, my, one of the boards I'm on, one of the guys said, European guy, he said, well, I heard he was a criminal. And I said, interesting, that that's, your thought process around this event where a policeman murdered this man, the friggin' people call it, we didn't make it up. <laughs> Somebody else, we didn't do it to ourselves. That your response was, oh, he must have done something bad. Therefore, the police have the right to kill him. That, that because in our lexicon of this world, the way the people around the world see us is a group of people that must be controlled. Police is not here to protect and serve. That's not what they're here for, for us. For us, it's social control. We need to be kept in our place. We have this tendency for violence or we are so super strong that they have to use these special, everything about it is wrong. Everything about it calls is wrong. And we actually are still having conversations about it that we start the conversations with, there must be a reason these people act this way. And that's the reason why these other people respond this way. It's just so crushingly disturbing sometimes. And other times you just say, you know, I, I say to my, Vernon Jordan used to say to me, um, stop complaining, just get on with it. Because right? I call this thing. He used to say to me all yeah. the time, you know, stop your and just move on. <laughs> stop your complaining and just move on. Because he wasn't trying to be vulgar at all. You know, it's, it's a kind of phraseology in, in, in kind of urban lexicon. But what he meant is that, yeah, it's bad. It's bad out there. It's bad out there. Don't forget, just kind of keep pushing to make it better, make it better, make it better. My husband would say the same thing all the time. Just kind of let's, you got it. Why are you so shocked? Charles Blow, he told us who he was. I loved, you know, he told us who he, who he was. Why are we surprised that he's acting that way? This is the president, the old president. And I said to Charles, the reason why I'm surprised is that it was not him. It was 70 something million Americans who voted for him that I was surprised about. And I realized that I had to kind of look around me when I'm walking down the streets, less in New York and than in other communities and say, who are you guys who voted for this man? Because if you voted for this man, particularly the second time, you, what you said is, I am willing to take this unbelievably bad behavior in certain areas. I'm willing to accept that easy for them to accept it, it's not happening to them, so that I can get a couple of more pennies or dollars in my pocket. That was a stunning uh, statement to me. He, in the beginning, we said, well, maybe he'd be controlled. But the second time that he ran, we saw him. 
what were we confused? He made it clear where he stood. He did some very bad things, very bad things. His rhetoric was horrible. It's not a leading rhetoric. It's not an inclusive rhetoric. It's actually an actively divisive rhetoric. And we had 70 million people say, I I get it, it's not that great. I get he doesn't particularly respect women. I know he doesn't like Mexicans. I know he doesn't like the people from Arabs. I know that he thinks blacks don't have any hope. I understand all that stuff, but but you know, he is really good for the economy. (laughs) I got it, I got it. Is that how we decide? Because if that's how we decide, I'm worried. I'm worried because I know where I'll be thrown the first time that there's a rush for the door or the bank or whatever the hell it is, we're going to be trampled because they say, well, it's worth it because it was anyway, I should I should finish. finish. Keep going. What, what, what do you think would have happened? Forty four thousand votes different and Trump would have been elected to a second term. Forty four thousand votes are fewer people or fewer people than are on the Upper East Side. Right. So it's not a lot of people. Right. Out of 100, out of 160 million votes. So if Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, um, Michigan had gone differently. We'd have a different president. Yeah. So, so, so what, would, what would have happened, do you think? First of all, I would have stayed firmly planted in London and become a total UK resident. I left for him. I left because my husband and I left because of him. We left because of him of the whole rhetoric around that time. We just could not deal with it. He was elected in 2017. We left in January, in 2016. We left in January, February, 2017. We lived away for that whole time. My husband passed away uh, in 2019. And that's one, I mean, personally, uh, my kids would have had a lot more <laughs> flying miles to to the UK. And if, I, if he were elected a second term, I would have convinced them to come here, to go there. Um, I think that we would be in a um, a spiraling um, decimation of structures in the United States. It's really, uh, and this is the part I just don't get, Carlos. I just don't get it. This was not an attack on blacks only. This was an attack on the the systems that make the country go. And I'm okay with fixing systems that are broken, but I've learned from watching the world, that if you destroy, it's like I call it, this is not a perfect, and I'm not trying to be demeaning to anyone, it's the Christian brotherhood in Egypt. You win the fight, and then they storm to each other and go, uh, now what? <laughs> now what? Um, well, who's going to be the leader? What, you know, we don't have a justice department. We have no police. We have no X, Y, Z. And we start, what are we looking at each other saying? Like, so I'm not saying we're perfect, but I think we have to have a transition that actually looks at the longer term. We would be, I, right now, we would be COVID overrun still because this guy was absolutely insane and ineffective with COVID. Uh, think about this. In a very short amount of time, this president and his then the vice president and whoever came in at that time said, let me tell you what the number one priority is. Can we just get friggin' people vaccinated? Can we get past this? Don't you see what's happening? We have thousands and thousands of people dying. This is not a... This is not a political thing. This is not an economic thing. This is a friggin' health crisis. Okay, we would still be in this discussion of little, you know, you can, we have some, te- we have some trailing participles of that right now. Whole people who are convinced that this is not a good idea. I'm like, hey, don't come into my house. <laughs> not vaccinated. I mean, really, so that's what we would have that. I don't, we, we would definitely be in the middle of that. We've been positively affected by the development of these drugs, but more importantly, by the insistence and logical conversation and you name it and harmonious conversation around get vaccinated. We're gonna give it to you, Get that we would have still been debating whether you had to do it, maybe not. Okay, that's one. Second, social unrest, we're seeing it now. We're seeing the rise of violence because of the decimation of structures, the, de- you know, the, the lack of hope and just the the movement, the fundamental crushing that we've had on poor black and white people and and women, definitely poor women, um, you know, both black and white women, but primarily people of color, literally moved back. They've lost a decade of grounds in one year. If that were, if we were continuing down that path with no hopeful conversations about here's what you look forward to, we're going to do a jobs act, we're going to do we would have social unrest in the streets. I assure, I guarantee you of that. 
we would not, particularly in big urban environments. What has happened is we've actually said, okay, let's, things are starting to look up and we're starting to talk about you. We're starting to plan for you. At least we have someone who's saying it's not your fault. That's all. At least we have someone saying, you know, you, no, no, you're not the weakling. You're not the, you know, I had COVID and I'm okay. What the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> Which I thought was an interesting kind of a way to approach this. We, that's no longer here. So we would, ha- right now we have a little bit more hopefulness. We don't have a lot of time to live on this. We have to keep enacting things. That's why I love what Biden is doing. I haven't been paying a, all the attention, but you know, listen, we have to do something. So how about this? How about this? How about, I'll keep going. Let's talk about it. Let's negotiate. Because this idea that we're going to sit here with tens of millions of people in America, literally not having enough food to eat, places to go. I live in Manhattan. You walk up and down the streets, you go by the churches. I, took a walk the other day and, and it really hit me because I, I live on the Upper East Side and I was walking past St. Ignatius, what is the, the school up here? And there's a line. And I said, oh, I realize what this is. And I walked a couple more blocks, another line. And these are the soup kitchens and the people who are, and these are regular people. Some of them just had a little bag because they had to get their food for the day. This, without hope, the reality becomes unbearable. Without hope, the reality becomes an incendiary device for destruction, right? If you don't have anything to look forward to, this is the typical, we know this around the world, what the hell do I have to lose, right? Without hope. And we had no hope before. People who were lesser, had less, had no hope. And, and right now we have a little bit of hope. So I think if we were to continue down the path we are on, social unrest, we saw it a little bit in policing, how policing was spiraling out of control. I mean, we all over the place. It still is not great, but don't get me wrong. I think we need police, so I'm not about, let's get rid of all the police. But I think we have to have a reset on the police. I mean, this is, there's a problem here. And people who look like us, particularly people who look like you, are you are a target. I say this to my son all the time. I mean, during the Black Lives Matter thing, when, when after Charles Floyd, he was in California and he was going out to march. I was marching in California, in England. And I said to him, ask him if you ever you be careful. Do not, this is a freaking guy who gets an engineering degree, you know, PhD from Stanford, near PhD from Stanford, three degrees from MIT, freaking amazing looking, very articulate, perfect guy. <laughs> he just happens to be black. I said to him, be careful. You're going to go out there and you're going to join a group of people who are whole bunches of them, tens of thousands who are marching. These people, when they say, if you get into any confrontation with these people that look like police people, you become the most docile person in the world. Listen to me. Do not. I don't want any of this pride or anything. I want you alive. Imagine I'm having this conversation with my son who did every single thing right. We did every single thing right to raise him. And I know for a fact that if he were in the street, based on what was happening back then and what we've seen since then and what we saw before, they would feel as though he fit the profile of a guy that we had to heavily control and he could be hurt and worse or worst case killed. So more than, you know, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't know if we're on already or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you know, but Ursula, I, I, I feel what you're saying, obviously, in the deepest and most profound way. And it's interesting, you know, uh, the record has it that I've never cried, but my eyes have gotten moist once or twice in my life. And hearing you talk, you know, I really, I can, I can hear my mom, may she rest in peace, just scared to death when I used to go out um, at night. And, um, and, Imagine and, this. and just... I say this yeah, to some of my just, white colleagues, and I said it on the news a while ago. This is way before. This is right after Black Lives Matter. I said, I am afraid in some certain circumstances. My son is, you know, he absolutely is afraid. And if he's not, I'm like, you fool, but you better be afraid. Because, but think about this is our, think about that. You, you had it as your reality, as the baseline. And think about that as your mother's reality and baseline, Right. But it's not, and then people, you know, some of my white colleagues say, oh, I didn't, it's not like we're waking up every day saying, oh my God, it's really a burden to be black. No, we don't even think about that way. I mean, actually, we kind of like where we are. We just don't like where you guys are. I mean, it's not, it's not also a stress. You guys, we'd be just fine, right? We're not waking up saying, oh my God, this is really a bad thing. I wish I was, no. 
Well, we wake up and say, I wish you guys would learn how to act. I wish you would learn more. There may be things we can do as well, but I don't, I don't look at this because I say, what, what can you do? I'm like, I don't, I think I'm going to keep warning my son, but I think what the question should be more on those guys, not on me. I'm not doing anything. I think that's part of the thing. Like we we kind of have become so used to this as the norm that we have accepted. And I don't mean this in a passive way. We've accepted this as a reality that will persist forever because it has persisted for so long. What we have to do now is say, I understand this reality. We got it. And I understand that it's not going to change overnight. Got that as, as well. But you said it was going to take us five generations. You have five weeks. Figure it out. We, we literally have to just keep pushing and pushing and pressuring and pushing down this anger and hate. And saying, listen, I'm not willing to live. I'm not, another person gets killed. We're just going to keep marching. We're going to march and march and yell and march and yell. and march. We're just going to keep being disruptive, um, positively disruptive, because you can't, I can't allow it to go any longer. Anyway, I'm, I get really, really I'm concerned about this whole time. I think we have a, an amazing opportunity in front of us. I think we have the start of, I say this a lot, thank you very much. Uh, Lin-Manuel, thank you, Hamilton. We have the start of a movement here. This is not a moment. It's been going on for long enough, a year, year and a half, and it come together by the killing of this man who George Floyd had no idea he was going to be so impactful on the world, in the world. He will be. We'll remember him as the guy, one of the igniters, right? We have this other guy, absolutely, one of the igniters. His name is President Donald Trump, who literally got so tin-eared and so um, hateful that we, people, even everybody, even some of his supporters said, you know, just stop talking. I mean, it's like, it's, it's making it worse. <laughs> just stop talking. And then we had this thing called the pandemic that we said, we, I love the, we have these things that call um, essential workers. Look at who they were. Look yeah. at the essential workers. Yeah. Yes. 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 The essential workers are the same guys that literally in another voice, we said we shouldn't pay them $15 an hour. That's too much. Hmm. Essential, less than $15 an hour. Essential. Seems like a mis, like inharmonious conversation. If they're not essential, how come we're not, we're fighting about giving them a couple of dollars to live more in what $15? And I said, well, that may be too much. I said, really? What do you think they're going to do with the extra? Buy a Maserati? What? <laughs> <laughs> what are, they're gonna probably put it in. They're gonna put that little bit of extra in the bank and maybe send their kids to college. I mean, we're not talking about paying them tens of millions of dollars like a CEO gets paid. <laughs> a freaking couple of dollars more an hour. I do understand it has impacts on, but I'm I'm tired of the I'm tired of hearing about it. My mother, amazing woman, made four thousand four hundred dollars a year, most as she ever made. We lived on that plus welfare. That's what. I, and if my mother were alive today, this was clear. And I cried a lot through the pandemic after you know, my husband died. It's just really, he died before the pandemic, but just kind of all weighing on you. I realized that if my mother were alive now, she would have had, she would have been crushed to death. Absolutely. We had no space. Carlos, we had none. We had no, I saw it in her when I got older. I write this in a book, just how, because we were living a good life, poor, but the kids, she did it fine. You know, we didn't have new clothes, but we had clean clothes. We didn't have the greatest food, but it tastes wonderful. I mean, but so she did what she could. You know, the house was not spectacularly decorated, but my God, it was clean. It was organized. We had rules and controls. When you walked into our house, you were in a play, a, a, more than a safe haven, a haven of all kinds that are good, good, a good haven. This woman to get there, which was the minimum that you could actually expect to live, sacrificed her whole life for us. Everything, everything. And died when she was 49. She, she wasn't killed by us. And there was no, but the lack of health, the lack of the wearing down, when she did get sick, it took her, right? And what I realized is if she were alive and she were doing what she was normally doing and we were living in that, she would be literally, her job would have stopped, her $4,400 a year, whatever that would have translated to now, let's say $10,000 a year, would have stopped. We would have almost surely, without protection from the government, been kicked out of our apartment. We clearly would have been living on uh, the welfare that we got and 
you would have taken this frantic woman and made her insanely frantic and it would have spilled over to us. We would have been affected. My mother would have been crushed. That's when I, that's how I remember her before this. Imagine there's still millions of them in New York city alone, tens of millions of them here in this city. And they were crushed. We just haven't heard them. That's the people who I see on the, on the food lines. That's what she would have been. What was your mom's name? Olga Raquel Burns. Hmm. Olga, right? So it's like you, Carlos, right? Yeah. yeah. Olga, where did that come from? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Olga Raquel Burns and my, and she, she, she was just an amazing, an amazing, amazing person. I talk a lot about her in the book. Um, that which was not the intention, but it's almost impossible for me to make a turn anywhere without having, you know, it's like your mother in, in your ear, right? You know, the, <laughs> you know how this is, right? They, you know, particularly black mothers, uh, they, they are in your ear. My mother was, just about every move I make, she's in there. She was not a saint. She was not superhuman, even though she seemed superhuman. She was fairly ordinary, but just very focused. She, she only had three assets in the world, only three. She had nothing else. My, me, my brother, and my sister. That's all she had. And every single, she protected these assets like, like the rich guys today protect their Maseratis and their, like I protect my plant house and my arts and whatever the hell it is. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's clear. It's clear now. It wasn't clear then. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A why did her daughter do so well like when you think about it why did you do well what can you tell us because I still remember reading about you um, years before I read about Reginald Lewis and all the, all of you folks were kind of points of light to use Papa Bush's phrase that was kind of kind of uh uh, kind of North Stars. I mean, I always thought about Harriet Tubman and I always thought about how she found her way. You know, how do you make a way out of no way? And you do it in part based on the stars and the light and you hope your, you know, you hope your instincts are right. But, but, but how did you end up making it from Olga's daughter, um, $4,400? Why do you think you made it in the end? Part of it is that I was Olga's daughter. I mean, not everybody can be Olga's daughter, and I and I was receptive to Olga's daughters, to Olga's teachings. That's one. I, so I had a, I had a good, 
good fundamental start, not not material, but definitely emotional. She did that something that she absolutely cared about, which was our strength, our solidarity around the positive parts of our character and our being. Um, so first is I had a good start, not financially, as I said, but a really good start on all the other things. Second is, and, and Carlos, help. <laughs> help every step of the way. I put in all the energy, I get it, but I have a lot of, I know a lot of people put in all the energy. I had strategic help, lucky help. <laughs> I had help. You know, um, get, you know, programs that paid for me to go to college and grad school. A great employer in the beginning of my career, a meeting some unbelievable people who helped me along the way. My husband, Vernon Jordan, I, it, it, help, 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 help. People who paid for me to go to college, these white guys who gave money to foundations and funds and some black guys, not a lot of them then, but um, help. Second thing is help. And we can't forget that as the recipients of help that made us, that made Carlos Carlos, that made me, me, that made Carisi her, we absolutely have to understand that our responsibility is to help. We absolutely can't get up in a day and feel good if we have not given back to someone out there, even if it means a guy in the street, to lighten their load. So help, big second thing. The third is stubbornness be above and beyond the call of duty. I just after a while just got pissed off at, pissed off is not a good word. I decided to say I am no longer, it is no longer acceptable for you to judge me based on these things that have nothing to do with your knowledge of me, right? And just being stubborn at it. Now the foundation, I, I did all this stuff in the foundation. I went to a good school. I got good grades. I did everything. You know, people say, well, how did you become CEO? How did you become the head of X? I said, well, you know what's interesting? I did exactly the same thing that you did. I mean, it, you know what I mean? It's, I didn't like, I didn't, I didn't, you didn't do, you didn't, you didn't uh, forgive me of steps. Literally, if there was a step, I did it. So I didn't jump over any steps. I didn't get special treatment through the steps. You, you know, you have to come to work every day. I did that. You have to get good grades in college. I did that. You have to go over here and learn this. So this, after a while, it became clear to me that, clear to me in a, in a very comfortable way, that all this stuff that they're talking about, us not having, not doing, is all, it's all BS. It's a, it is part of the, the mark of supremacy, right? Because what supremacy does is it defines a standard that some of it's written, a lot of it isn't. A lot of it is insurmountable by the person who is not in the Supreme group. One of the things, for example, is that you should be white. I'll never be, you'll never be, we just won't be in that group. The other one, for sure, if you're a woman, is that you should be a male. That's a, there is a supremacy and that structure. Our world is designed around that structure. Right, we don't have adequate health, health uh, uh, child care, but don't worry, the women will take care of that. Right? <laughs> really? Suppose all women all went on strikes. Hey, we're done. We're done. We're not going to do that anymore. We're going to go to an island. We built the structure with the understanding, unwritten, and therefore unprepared for that. Worst case, best case. I don't give a shoot what case. Women are going to do this job. Keep going, right? We build a, a structure that there is certain work that only immigrants will do. Only people who, so we build these structures that fit the supreme being. And we contort ourselves to fit into that, even though we can't, some of us can't, oh, we'll never get there. But we, when we get there, the structure says, you guys are exceptional. You're spectacular. And I, I keep looking at it. It took me a while to get comfortable with this. I'm like, I did exactly what you, I mean, wait a minute. Why is it that if I did exactly what you did, in order for me to be in this room, I have to be exceptional. I got it after a while. The only way that they could see that I could be there, looking how I looked, coming from where I come, was that I must have been this exceptional person. And otherwise there'd be a whole lot, we couldn't justify not having a whole lot more of you in this room. It's, I don't know if I'm explaining it well, but it's like, 
I am. I'm smart. I work hard. Don't get me wrong. I, I've done really good things. I've screwed up lots of stuff in the world. But people consistently called me spectacular, amazing. Oh, my goodness. Look at what and I after a while. I'm like, to tell you the honest truth. This is to myself. I don't feel that way. I mean, when I, I, I did what they did, and I realized that their compliment to me was about them, not about me. It justified their ability to not have me in the room. It just us in the room. It just unless you were this amazing being, and clearly they're not these a lot of these amazing beings, so they don't belong here. They don't need to be here. I'm speaking to President. Uh, he's going to call me. Oh no, he called me already. Hold on, I got to go. I hate to say this. Hello, Sir Still Burns. Hi, this is Amos Jackson with President Obama's office. How are you? How are you? Good. I'll have the president for you in one second. Okay, great. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. Hello. I got to go. I have to go. Okay. Love you. See you soon. Is this show winning or what? Guys, are we winning? Come on, baby. You know we're winning. You know we are winning. You know we are winning. How are we not winning, Eli? How are we not winning? There's no way we're not going to win. There's no way we're not going to win. We are winning. We are winning. That was exceptional. <laughs> that was exceptional. That was exceptional. Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're winning. There's a reason. We're winning. We're winning here. We're winning. We gotta win. We gotta win. <laughs> that was pretty awesome. That's, that is hot. That's hot. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends to find us on the iHeart Podcast app or Apple Podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.